0: The Jericho Network on Westwood One. The following program is presented by the Jericho Network in association with Podcast One. Hey you.
1: Yeah you. Faithful listener. Do you want to help my podcast Rock Talk with Mitch Lafon Stay free to download with minimal ads? I mean I want that. I want more Rock Talk and I can assume that you want that too. Too many commercials are a drag. Well... Do me a favor and take this quick listener survey to help support the show. Your responses will help align the appropriate advertisers to my audience, which is you. And don't worry, the survey is short and completely anonymous and takes no more than five minutes to complete. Just go to podcastone.com forward slash my survey or simply head over to podcastone.com and click on the survey banner. If you filled out a survey in the past, well, thank you. But we still need you to do it again, because you're doing us all a huge favor by filling it out. And thank you for supporting Rock Talk with Mitch Lafon and taking the time to complete the survey. Now, please, click away and start the survey. <laughs> Podcast One presents Rock Talk Talk. with Mitch LaFawn. All the rockers. All the stories. This is incredible. Now, now, here's your host, respected rock journalist, Mitch LaFawn. Welcome to uh, Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn, episode 25. And join me on this episode. It is former Pantera bassist Rex Brown. He has a new album called Smoke On This. And on the other side... From the Dead Boys, it is guitarist Cheetah Chrome. Now, last episode, I decided to go straight into the first interview and do the Rock Talk segment after. I like that. I like that the way that sounded, the way that came out. So I'm going to do the same thing here. I'm going to get right into Rex Brown. But stick around right after the break, because we're going to come back with a Rock Talk section with a guy named Buddy Blaze. And Buddy is a creator of guitarists. He builds guitarists for various rock stars and he helped create some of the most iconic guitars that you've seen in all the videos including guitars for Dimebag Daryl of of course Pantera and Vivian Campbell of White Snake, Def Leppard fame and Dio can't forget Dio whenever I forget Dio people go hey he was in Dio but uh, there you go so let's get into uh, interview number one with um, you know what almost former bassist uh, now because uh, on the new Smoke on This album, Rex Brown has moved to the front of the stage with vocals and guitar. So uh, here is guitarist, vocalist, and bassist extraordinaire Rex Brown. We are speaking with Rex Brown. The new album is called Smoke on This. Rex, Always, always a great pleasure to uh, to speak with you.
0: Thanks so much for having me, Mitch. I sure appreciate it, man.
1: Yeah, so I do actually want to focus as much as possible on this record, um, but I'm going to start just with uh, back in 2013, you you did this Kiss tribute for me, and you did the song Larger Than Life, and right, yeah, and, and to me that was a revelation, and I'm going to tie it into this record the fact is is that i always thought of you, you as could. the bass player and down and the, but when i heard you sing i went why is this guy not doing a solo record like why is he not just getting behind the mic and knocking stuff out and so here you are on smoke you know, on I this did. and you're doing maybe,
0: it maybe that was a catalyst to get me in front of a mic you know um I kind of let, you know, living like God, you know, let, let, let things blow. Um, when you approached us by doing that thing, I said, well, man, I, I played larger than mine forever. Let me see if I can tackle the vocals on it. And Mark and I got up in, uh, Zavon and, and, uh, and got up in the room and I just, uh, just kind of came to me. I mean, it was, uh, that's one of my favorite, like, you know, tracks off the alive the Two. you know, yeah. the, those, those studio tracks and, um, and so it was like when it that came around that maybe that's what kind of got me thinking, you know, um, that I could sing, but it, I don't think it was the entire catalyst of why I did this record.
1: No, obviously not. We'll get into. No, Obviously not. But, but it was a revelation to me. And then you did out. You went out and did those two shows under the banner alive with, with a Bumblefoot and stuff. And you got to be on stage and be the vocalist for at least part of those shows. Um, so, so, so talk to me about that. Talk, talk, not about those shows, but talk to me about being a vocalist and having the confidence to say, "Okay, I'm not going to go hire a guy. Rex is doing this by himself."
0: Well, it was. It, I started this thing. And it, Lance Harville was a real good buddy of mine. We did some stuff prior. Uh, did some uh, placements for movies and stuff down at Willie Nelson Studios. So, known Lance, and Lance goes back to the days of me and Dime and him sitting in Don's garage drinking beer and just playing riffs you know um so lance is not you know i've known him forever i mean so i I went down and he had just moved into nashville and i'll try to make this as short and sweet as possible um we started throwing ideas together and he had this one song called fault Fault line that um that i really did something about the song i said man let me try to sing that you know um but let's try let's see let's find our voice you know, let's see that see if we can find that voice that we're looking for and so after about you know seven or eight times that we went through it, I finally found where I was comfortable in that you know in 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 the singing part, and this was like two days before we go in the studio to to start tracking eleven songs um that Lance and I had put together, but it was only at that point, at the, at that time, they were these were just going to be demos to see what I wanted to do. Um, and it, but once I found that voice, it was you know, it uh, at first it was frightening, and, and then after that, it was uh, it was invigorating. It was like well I can well I can go here and go there, and that that's kind of what soundscape the whole record. You know, um, we initially put a bunch of of um, of different kind of reverbs and all kinds of different distortion on the vocals and all that stuff. At the end of the day when I you know listened to all this stuff, I just told my producer, I said, stripper bear. You know, i I just want that voice to be um want it to be real. I want it to be honest. I want it to be uh raw, you know? Um and so that's that's the way it worked out, man. But you know, over the last um I've been sitting on the record for eight months you know, just came out last week. Um, it, it's one of those things where uh, this is just my new journey. You know, it's just um, I had a bunch of lost chords in my head, you know, and I wanted to put them together. And Lance really helped me kind of shape and form. And also with Caleb Sherman and, you know, the the drummer on this record, Christopher Williams, was yep. just, you know, you're playing, playing with some top-notch dudes, man. You, you can't fail this one. Um, so we went through quite a bit of, of really just detailing the crap out of these songs as far as song-wise. And, um, you know, some of them were six minutes long, and I wanted to condense them because this is just my first little outing, you know. But it's a very personal record, and I'm very proud of it. And, um, you know, number one, I had to appease myself before I'm going to send it to the masses. You know, I didn't know how I was going to do that. Um, I didn't know if I well, do I do it myself? You know, do I give it to a label? Let's see you know, does the shit on the wall, see if it sticks. So, um, it, it, here we are, man. You know, yeah. I, I'm, I'm just happy as punch about it, you know?
1: Yeah. And of course, uh, Christopher Williams, you've mentioned, uh, plays drums with accept and,
0: uh, you know, kicking ass over there. He's but... a monster. Dude. But dude, dude, this cat, he's, it's not only the metal thing. He, dude, He can play. I mean, we went back and re-recorded the drums in August this last year and he, he, uh, he recorded it four different times, four different ways. No punch ins, and just I just picked the one that I thought fit the bass track the best. And it was just I mean the the cat can play anything, you know, just one of those kind of guys. And I've just been surrounded, especially with this new touring band, with just these just exceptional cats that just want to fuck, just want to jam, man. You know, yeah. Um, that's what this thing started out as, and then it became a little bit bigger and a little bit more magical. And uh I knew it was on to something, and uh I stopped the process you know yeah
1: no now you said no punch and so so those the, the drums on the album are basically live takes, like straight through 'cause that that would be phenomenal uh,
0: yeah, we kept wow, uh, I remember some of we kept like a couple of we kept like a couple off the first batch, you know, I thought I was going to go and record three songs and three or eleven songs and three or thirteen songs, excuse me. in in three days, and I ended up being there for three weeks. So we, uh, you know, the first four songs we really focused on, which are on the record in in its entirety, um, or in the sequence. um, Those are the first four that we really worked on, and that's what I had to take back home, and I would go back and forth to the studio like every three or four weeks, and then stay for a couple of weeks and finish up this. And so we did these songs in spurts of four, you know? And it was just, man, it was for, for an artist and as a bass player to, to go and play and sing. Number one, sing on your own record. You know, uh, the, bass, the bass, I can just stick my hands. And I know exactly what's going to happen with it. Um, but, with, you know, being able to play guitar on this thing, something that's also been a passion of mine forever. I've played guitar forever. I have one by my nightstand for, you know, as long as I can remember. As, as I write on that for a lot of stuff, so um, to just have a, the opportunity to do it and not have a deadline or not a tour in front of you, it was just a it was a great it, it was you know look I just um, there,
2: I, I, there I was, was just a great freedom for another way right
0: yeah it's just it's just this freedom man it gives you this uh, this new feeling and then life towards um, you know I, you know twenty five years on that road I got burnt on that bus I mean I was just smoked. I was, um, I was like, I just need to stop and smell the roses for a little bit, you know? And uh, with this record, it's just giving me the musical freedom that, that I clearly need.
1: Yeah, well, in fact, I want to talk to you about the musical freedom because you look at a song like Grace, which to me, and correct me if I'm wrong, it, when I listen to it, I, I, I get visions of Strawberry Fields Forever from the Beatles. It has that sort of psychedelic kind of thing going to it.
0: Um, are you sure it's Grace or not? Get yourself alive. Get well, yourself alive. To the the psychedelic.
1: Well, the, both of them actually. Well, I, I for for some reason when I, and, it, and it is Grace. When I hear Grace, for some reason I, I keep hearing sort of a Strawberry Fields thing going to it. But but the point being though is that
0: you no, know. Me, you, you, go you, ahead. I was well, going to say, me and Lance, are big. We're huge Beatle freaks, man. I mean, you know, um, listen to the White Album. You know. From, if you just listen to that, if you kind of stumped on something, you can kind of go through there and just go, Oh shit, that's it. You know? Um, yeah. I mean, listen to a lot of, I listened to a lot of old stuff, you know, I was going back over, you know, my whole discography of stuff of, uh, of what I liked about what I wanted to do. You know, I had to take a step backwards to maybe go forwards. Um, you know, I was carrying that the heavy metal flag for 25 years and I, I just didn't, uh, um, didn't feel like I can anymore. You know, um, this is a new thing. So getting back to your grace, that's one of those songs where Lance had this this kind of funky beat and uh and he had some crazy lyrics on it. And and I go, dude, we gotta put this on here. Just let's just track it. You know what I'm saying? Let's just see what happens with it. And so I went in and put this kind of different bass line to you know, I wanted to kind of throw that on there just to kind of shake some some shh up. You know what I'm saying? Um, what are people going to think about this? So I played it for my 17 year old daughter, and she's a big, she's the biggest Rex Brown critic in the in the world. She goes, "Dad, I don't like that." You know, or something yeah, like that. Yeah, I, I have a daughter too. Was, uh... Her favorite song. <laughs> she's 17. She's an incredible guitar player, and uh, and so I played it for her. And she goes, "Dad, that's probably my favorite song on the record." You know, the same thing with I gave it to Philip and uh, and on. he's the same way. I mean, he just thinks D- you should have just done a whole record like that one, you know. Yeah, I was like, well, I had too much other stuff, I wanted to get out to someone. You know, every song is a I want to take you on a journey, you know, then you have the next song, but I wanted to keep them short and sweet. You know, if you listen to a Beatles track like Come Together, it's only 33 three minutes long, you know. Um, kind of. Get to the Course, Don't Bore Us, you know, um, looking in hindsight now, wish there was a couple more jam sessions in there. But um, other than that, man, it's just about the song. And that's what this whole record was. Like. It was just about songwriting and what's the best that we can do for the first, you know, uh, we have tons of stuff in the can.
1: Now, you mentioned a journey, and actually, that that's a good point to, to, to take up on, because when you listen from Lone Rider all the way down to one of these days, it's not a straight line of here's metal in your face, metal in your face, metal in your face, and it's not here's funk funk funk. there really goes there's a there's there's peaks and valleys, there's ups and downs. How important was it for you to be diverse and were you at all worried that the die hard you know pantera fan was going to say, "Ugh, oh, what is a song like race what no. is?" A,
0: you know, in the back of my mind, I, don't, I always think of something like that. But I think that, you know, a lot of the guys that, that kind of grew up with Pantera or have turned their sons or, or daughters on to Pantera, which kept this legacy alive. Um, they've listened to the same stuff that I listened to when I was growing up. You know what I'm saying? Um, even as some of the newer fans that, um, you know, Pantera died when when Dime did, basically. And, uh but that doesn't mean that we can't move on musically. And I think that this record, it, it uh, I had some really good help with, you know, Caleb Sherman pulling a lot of stuff out of me. Um, and that was just sitting there. And and, and what a waste, you know? Um, I, I just really, look, I, I, I just wanted to make the record that I wanted to make. You know, finally, um, I got the chance to do that. And then somebody, you know, E1 picked it up and they've done an amazing job with it. So, just, um, uh, I couldn't be happier or, you know, yeah. um, I, I just, you know, there, there's so much depth into, into this material. And, but it was so, it was so thought out, but it was so kind of go by the seat of your pants that it turned out to be something really, I think just kind of special, it's special for me.
1: Yeah, it really is. Now you've been in band situations for, almost your entire career you know pantera down uh, kill devil hill et cetera. talk to me now about going out alone and being you know the rex brown or the rex brown band or whatever you're uh, is that a different challenge and is that where you want to go for the rest of your career or do you want to get back into a band and be just one of the
0: four guys well i mean I, dude i've got to focus on this i've got a sh- shitload of touring coming up you know um you know, we have to get get a name out there and everything else, and we'll have a lot of these huge festivals that'll be coming around. You know, I wanted this to be a summer record, so um, you know, it's the last thing you're gonna hear before you start school or whatever. You know, um, maybe it, it it'll turn so many people onto it. You know, it turns people onto the old Pantera. I don't know. You know, I wouldn't. I, I, when I got it, when we started this record, I didn't. I, I didn't. I don't have any. Preconceived notions of what it is. I just wanted to write, you know, thirteen of the best songs that I could, you know, and and that was the goal. And then me singing, I I didn't even think about the Rex Brown moniker. If you do think about this, Mitch, if you took me off the cover and just had that tape and listened to it, would it be different? You would it see be? What I'm saying it's all about it's all about music, right? It's not about it's not about the packaging. It's not about this social media. It's not about any of that. It's about making good music again, and that's what I needed to do.
1: And it, it, it turned out great. Now uh, you mentioned the touring, uh, and there's going to be a lot of it. Um, what is a fan going to see? I mean, is it is it going to be the entire album from top to bottom? Are you going to do some Kiss covers? You know, because Larger Than Life would be would be great.
0: Well, <laughs> but, but no. <laughs> No, but they, that's a good idea. I didn't think of that. One. Um, <laughs> yeah. That that'd be a cool track to do. But I don't, you know, people are already saying, "Oh, dude, he sounds like Gene Simmons in this song." Well, look, you know, Kiss were a huge influence on me. You know, even though it, I look, you know, now you say it as a fifty-year-old man, going, "Uh, you know, Kiss were a huge influence." But they were. I mean, they were. You know, when I moved to the big city when when I was like ten years old. You know, I lived in a small peanut town before then. You didn't see any of that kind of crazy shit. You know, um, you know, Kiss, Kiss is right there, but I didn't try to draw Gene's voice or anything like that. That's just naturally me, you know. Um, so, you know, the larger knife. life, I was trying to sound like Gene. And, but this one, this is just my raw voice, you know. Um, and it does have a little hint of influence in there. But this is my first go-around at a record singing. You know, they, I could take this to all kinds of different places. And I have through the, throughout the record. You know, so, yeah, it's going to be, the show's going to be, I, I really don't want to give it away. I mean, you know, there's a dual bass solo and and uh, all kinds of crazy stuff. But it's it's me playing guitar, and then we'll, we're going to throw some covers in. If I see the crowd starting to wane a little bit, we'll throw them something cool. You know? <laughs> well, um, I'm sure they'll be with you. I think with Jordy... You know, it just depends on the venue. It just depends on, on the atmosphere of what you want to do. I mean, you could always start off with a Foghat song and just roll them into the record. You know, it, it, an old Foghat rarity uh, and then roll them into the record. You know, it's, man, I'm, I'm really having fun with this blues, this heavy blues accent, you know? This this kind of, uh, this is where I started, man, that, that easy top boogie, you know, that stomp, boogie feel that's that's what I'm that's that's right where I'm at I mean you know musically right now um and so you know I'm already writing songs for the next record and, and um and that's that's where my head's at it's, it's more of a really good thump you know yeah. uh but still keep it rocking roll, you know
1: now you've mentioned a couple you, of times you have to diversify
0: yeah. yourself. You know, just let me say this again: you, you, you've got to diversify yourself because I felt like I was painting the same painting, just putting a different stroke here. You know what I'm saying? As a as a painter, you would want to draw a whole bunch of you would want a whole collection of paintings, wouldn't you? You know, um, which I've I've done. This is just a, these are man, these are just these are just another uh, extension of me. They're just songs. You know what I'm saying? Take away the hype, take away the everything else, all the bullshit. And just listen to the record. That's all I care about. And it's got to be re- the jam.
1: It's got to be refreshing as an artist to, to to get to 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 use your analogy, sort of paint with different uh, colors and stuff. Now, is this just the beginning of? Um, no, let me rephrase that. Musically, because you've mentioned a couple of times that you that there's going to be a second album that you've started writing. There's stuff left over in the vaults is this sort of going to be the Rex Brown sound or would you go down the road and, and have a more country album and have, basically, how how far out from the metal do you want to get? Do you want to try and, and make a more, you know, like, do you have that freedom at this point to do just really absolutely what you want?
0: Oh, absolutely. You know, I I think that uh, if you just keep sticking yourself in the corner, you're not going to be able to bail out of that thing. And I just felt it. I felt it. Um, once we started writing this song, I felt the parachute, you know, drop. And, um, and I could just glide it, you know, wherever I wanted to go. And it was a freaking wonderful feeling, man. You know, um, if I wanted to put a country, if I wanted to put strings, if I wanted to do a a polka metal band, I can do whatever I want. I mean, it's just music, right? You know, but right now I've got a pretty good formula. I want to kind of stick on it, you know? Um, so I don't know what's going to happen six months from now. I know that I'm in today and that's all that care that matters to me. Um, and then, you know, all these other plans that, that, you know, that I have great management and all that kind of stuff that, uh, we're going to see this all the way through, you know, this is uh this is a word of mouth record and, and that's the way I like it. You know, yeah. um, even though we are, even though we are getting a little, little bit of radio play, it, it, I, you know, you can't, you can't, uh, expect everyone to like it but if i man if i can turn on some new people to music great you know i mean that's a new musician's anything like you know if five people to 100 people love this record to a thousand or whatever whoever it is if i've done that i've done my job you know i think that's the only way you can look at it
1: yeah i agree and of course um the tour will start soon and and Hopefully, we'll see you in Canada at some point, because uh, that would be absolutely wonderful.
0: To oh, you.
3: absolutely.
0: I'll, in fact, Canada's like on our next list of what I'd really like to do before the weather gets really crappy out there. Um, yeah, Montreal in January know, I, is not
1: a good tour option. I'm just, just letting you know. No.
0: <laughs> um, I, that's, I think that would be our next logical you know, move is to come up. And I like to start in Vancouver and just go all the way across the country, you know, that... That to me would be, uh, that would be really, really cool. I, we did that before Kill Barber Hill, and I think it's one of my most memorable tours I had of recent years um, of just playing these little podunk cities in between, and uh, the hospitality was just great. The people were wonderful. Um, you know, I, I've got a, a real good affinity with our border, and uh, you know. Canada
1: that was a that was a great tour as well uh there you go Rex um great pleasure and of course i I do recommend everybody pick up smoke on this. It is a wonderful um rock and roll record we're going to call it a rock and roll record it 's not really heavy metal it it's got a bit of everything it it's shaded all kinds of places it It's just a great journey, just
0: a great musical journey thank you, sir. I appreciate it absolutely and thank you Rex oh well, yeah I'm just getting my feet wet, man i 'm back i to take a little breather. And now, uh, you know, the creative side's coming out a little bit more. And, and, uh, you know, the sky's the limit, wherever you want to take it, you know. Um, We just have to wait and see, baby. Absolutely. Thank you. With a smile.
3: (laughs) We'll see you, buddy. Thank you. You're listening to Rock Talk with Mitch LaFond. Rock Talk.
1: Mitch here. Are you in the market for a new car and want to see what others have paid? Well, in order to feel comfortable that you are getting a fair price, you need pricing context. Information that empowers you to feel confident. With TrueCar, Car, you will see what other people in your local market paid for the car you want. From there, you can connect with a local True Car certified dealer and enjoy a more confident car buying experience. Using TrueCar, you can easily find the car you want. TrueCar will show you what other people in your area paid for the car you want. Now you know what a fair price is you can feel confident. Once you register, you'll see real pricing on actual inventory. This is competitive pricing offered to you only by TrueCar certified dealers for an actual vehicle on the It's pricing you'll see before going to a dealership so you can feel confident when you show up. With True Car, you can connect with a local certified dealer of your choosing so you can enjoy a quick, easy buying experience. True Car customers are more likely to enjoy a faster buying process when they connect with True Car certified dealers. True Car users save an average of $3,000 off MSRP. When you're ready to buy, visit TrueCar to enjoy a more confident car buying experience. Some features not available in all states.
0: Now back to Rock Talk with Mitch LaFond.
1: Welcome back to Rock Talk, and I certainly hope you enjoyed that interview with Rex Brown. Smoke on This is the new album. Do check that out. And our next interview is Cheetah Chrome of the band Dead Boys. They have a new album called Still Snotty, Young and Loud, and Snotty at 40. They are also currently on tour, but before we get to that, our rock talk segment and uh, today I wanted to talk with buddy blaze and he creates and custom makes guitars for uh, rock stars and I wanted to sort of get in a little bit you know a little ten minute chat about what it 's like to make guitars for rock stars and we focus on two in particular dimebag Daryl of course of Pantera and Vivian Campbell of. River Dogs, Dio, Deaf Leopard, White Snake, and Shadow King. That's right, with Lou Graham. Remember that album? If you haven't heard that album, go check that out. But uh let's get right into this. Here is Buddy Blaze talking about making guitars. We are speaking with Buddy Blaze, and of course, uh Buddy, pleasure to have you. You are a guitar maker,
2: right? Yes, sir, guilty. Guilty. guilty, and uh, if folks <laughs>
1: want to check out your guitars, they can head over to buddyblaze.com. And you know, I, I wanted to, to have you on today to, to talk about making guitars because you know we always think of those big, you know, Les Paul and Gibson and this and that, but there are these smaller companies that make incredible, incredible instruments, and you're one of them. So. When an artist well, comes, you. yeah. when an artist comes to you to, to make a guitar, what, what sort of the first things that you're looking for from them in terms of putting together a piece for them?
2: Well, I mean, if I'm not familiar with the artist, then I want to know who do they love as a guitar player? Uh, what kind of music are they into? Which bands? On and on and on. Um, everything matters. And I, I want to know who I'm making a guitar for. And, uh, you know, take it from there.
1: Now, I was introduced to you uh, from Alan Niven, who, of course, formerly managed uh, Guns N' Roses. And you have an interesting uh, line of guitars and people you've worked with. One of them is an artist I recently interviewed, Vivian Campbell. Um, but you worked with him not recently with Def Leppard, but back in the day with Whitesnake. Is that is that about correct?
2: Well, actually, both.
1: Both. Actually, okay. both.
2: I made guitars for him. Um, we got together, he was in a band called Trinity, and he was doing an in-store. He had just, you know, recently departed Dio. And uh, anyway, David had tapped him to do the Still of the Night video, along with Rudy and Adrian and Tommy. And, um, you know, it was, you know, one of those things that, that was what David had pictured in his mind as the ultimate, you know, white snake live lineup. And, uh, anyway, when Vivian and I, uh, you know, Vivian went to Dallas for a guitar show and I was, you know, working at a guitar store and making guitars that, you know, they would let me hang up in the store and, and, uh, you know, Vivian tried two or three of my guitars out and said, Holy crap, these are really good. And, uh, we talked about doing something together at that time. And then in the middle of the process, uh, David called Vivian up and offered him the White Snake gig, you know, not just to do videos, but to be, you know, a member of the touring band and, you know, an eventual member of the band at that time. And, uh, you know, the rest is history. I mean, it's, it's, you know, a guitar that literally Vivian and that guitar literally changed my life. It's never been the same since.
1: Yeah, explain to me how that changed your life, because it appeared in one of the videos, and then more people came to you. And I I believe Eddie Ojeda of Twisted Sister came to you as well, right?
2: Eddie and I are good friends, and we go way, way back. Okay. Uh, About the same, you know, time frame. Um, uh, You know, J.J. and Mark were the first guys I met in Twisted Sister. And then uh, shortly after going to Kramer, Eddie Ojeda came to me, um, you know, because he had seen what was going on with Vivian. also Aerosmith smith and many 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 others winger before anybody even knew who they were i was making guitars for kip and reb and uh you know it, i you know it's easier to say who i didn't make guitars for than it is who i did because i can't remember everybody unless you ask me right right but, uh, uh but vivian vivian's so widely respected uh you know on every level uh, you know, as, as the ultimate rock guitar player, is absolutely one of my favorite guitar players, but he's a dear, dear friend. And, uh, we actually, yeah, we, we launched a model with him while, in while he was in Def Leopard called the Evanator, which is our single cut type guitar. But right. back in those days, we had a guitar called the night Swan that we launched with Kramer guitars. And, uh, that became a really famous guitar and, and a really hot seller. And, and, uh, to this day they're highly sought after guitars and you know it's, it's it literally once vivian basically gave me the thumbs up uh the whole world started knocking my door down
1: and of course you had the the famous blue burst polka dot guitar right that was introduced in the here i go yeah. again video uh talk to me about that video and 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 getting him to use it in the video
2: well getting him to use it in the video there's a little bit of a story on that um the uh, uh Vivian and I discussed what the guitar was going to be uh, when he left to go to the airport from that Dallas guitar show all those years ago. We discussed, we literally designed that guitar from his hotel room to the the airport gate. And, uh, you know, um, he wanted a, a blue burst guitar, but he wanted polka dots that faded in and out and and uh, he wanted the inlays to be all different sizes, but on the correct positions and this and that. And, and, and you know, in a very, very thin neck and a flat neck and this and that. And I mean, there were a lot of details and it was all based on a conversation. Anyway, uh, I knew when I was painting that guitar and everything that, you know, uh, by the time I started painting it, I was aware that he was going to join Whitesnake. Now, when we started it, it was Trinity but uh, he joined Whitesnake and I flew out to da- to LA to deliver the guitar to him. And he was just floored by it. And, uh, um, at that point he decided I was, I never pushed him to put it in the video. And then and when we started the guitar, there was never, um, you know, a thought that it, it may end up in a White Snake video or anything like that. That's just the way things turned out. And, uh, but uh, it was a testament to the guitar and, and to our relationship that, that yeah. he did that. And ironically, that guitar, that that song ended up being Whitesnake's only number one single. And, wow. you know, it was on heavy rotation on MTV. And uh, really, once Vivian said, I can make a guitar, it, my life has never been the same. It really has. Never had. been the same since.
1: And then the other yeah. one that... that folks might know but they might not know who is the creator of it is the dean from hell the dimebag daryl abbott um or dimebag daryl um talk to me about yep. that guitar real quick and uh and, and of course i do encourage people to head over to buddy com to check all this stuff out but but talk to me about the dean from hell because that's iconic in terms of guitars
2: yeah um, the the real story behind that guitar which uh we're in a dispute about at the moment with uh dean guitars and the estate but uh the real truth about that guitar is that uh when daryl was a young guy he won this guitar in a competition and it was maroon and it just didn't speak to him his dad had bought him this beautiful cherry burst dean ml and uh daryl just loved that guitar and daryl being a teenager had to get a car and he wanted this yellow firebird and He begged me to buy this guitar, and I refused to buy it. And uh, one day, uh, the singer in my band comes to rehearsal with this big old Dean case, and I knew exactly what was in it because he was a friend of Daryl's as well. And uh, anyway, I had just bought a very expensive guitar, and, and I had six or seven really nice guitars, and the singer ends up, you know, I told him, I said, you can have any guitar I own, but you're not leaving with that Dean. That's mine you know, and, and, uh, so I traded my most expensive and newest guitar for that, that Dean. And I've never liked playing anything but blue or black guitars. So I had to paint it blue and, and, uh, eventually put a lightning storm set up on it, reshape the neck, you know, put a Floyd Rose in it, just totally gutted the guitar and, and started over. And, uh, Daryl had seen it. Um, and this was actually a couple of years before Vivian, but Daryl had seen it and, and uh, just absolutely fell in love with it and begged me to make him a copy of it, which I never did. And uh, when I met Vivian, the whole, you know, every guitar company on the planet was trying to hire me and I ended up going to Kramer guitars and it was solely because they had the Floyd Rose tremolo and other companies, we would have had to use a license and and I really wanted to work with the real stuff and at that time, you had to work with Kramer and uh, so anyway, long story short, I got too busy and to even think about making a copy of that guitar and I drove over to Daryl's house and dropped off that ML you know that now had the lightning storm and everything on it. Um, it was totally for me by me, but Daryl loved it. And, uh, you know, the rest is history. I mean, what Daryl did with it is amazing. Uh, truly the greatest heavy metal guitar player, bar none. And, uh, you know, it's a, it's a, I'm honored to be part of that history.
1: And, and of course, truly, truly, miss. Buddy, uh, pleasure speaking with you today. And, of course, uh, BuddyBlaze.com.
2: Thanks, Mitch.
3: You're listening to Rock Talk with Mitch LaFond. Rock Talk.
1: Thank you to Buddy Blaze for that quick, quick insight. Uh, do check out BuddyBlaze.com, and he will custom make a guitar for you, if you so choose. And, of course, while you're checking stuff out, please head over to the iTunes Store or Google Play or wherever, and pick up the Podcast One app. That is a great way to listen to this show and every show on Podcast One. And then head over to Twitter and check me out, at Mitch Lafon, M-I-T-C-H-L-A-F-O-N, M-I-T-C-H-L-A-F-O-N. Same thing on Instagram, except it's at Mitch underscore Lafon, L-I-F-O-N. And there is the Facebook page, which is Rock Talk Mitch Lafon. So check all that stuff out. Like it, love it, tweet, retweet, you know, do whatever you can. Uh, the more, the merrier. And uh, let us move over to the Dead Boys and Cheetah Chrome. New album is called Still Snotty, Young, Loud, and Snotty at 40. Absolute pleasure talking to Cheetah. Great, great chat, and uh, definitely one of the forefathers of the punk scene. So uh, without further ado, here is the one, the only, guitarist Cheetah Chrome. We're speaking with uh, guitarist Cheetah Chrome of uh, the Dead Boys. The new album is Still Snotty, Young, Loud, and Snotty at 40. Uh, Cheetah, a great pleasure
3: to speak with you. Well, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to speak to you. Yeah, you know,
1: it's not every day that you sort of speak to an originator of a scene, and you know, folks will argue it, but the Dead Boys were sort of the the, the forefront of the punk scene, right?
3: Yeah, we were right there in the thick of it. We <laughs> were definitely like the Marines going in. <laughs> yeah,
1: definitely. So, uh, you know? <laughs> so we'll, we'll we'll go over everything here, but let's start with the the new album, uh, still snotty, young, loud, and snotty at forty. A lot of folks are going to say, hey, re-recording this, you're you're, you're sort of re-recording a classic, but talk to me about doing it because there was a good reason to do it and the the album sounds great. Um, What was it about going in and saying, okay, let's tackle these songs again?
3: Well, you know, the Dead Boys were told when we did the original album that that was going to be just a demo. And um, it ended up, they, the record company decided they would, just put it out as a record, you know, put that out as the record. Somebody got a bonus, so they saved money or whatever. You know, I'm sure there was some ulterior motive. There was a record coming, you know, special Sire. <laughs> but, um, you know, uh, we weren't happy at the time. Um, it grew on us because, you know, again, you did do a really good job of taking a demo and making it into a record that has stood up for 40 years. Um, so we have, you know, uh, nobody has any problem with the, the record anymore you know but it still wasn't quite what we heard in our heads you know we'd never been in a studio before we'd never had no knowledge of the recording process and um so we decided to go in and kind of see if we could get close to what we, the original sort of sound like in our like what we heard in our heads you know like what we wanted you know right but but wasn't that and, sort of sorry go ahead oh go ahead i Go ahead.
1: I was just going to say, but, but that, of course, was, was sort of what made the first Young, Loud, and Snotty very sort of unique is that it really is this in your face, you know, sonic assault, if you want,
2: right?
3: Well, yeah, but I mean, it could have been more of one. I mean, I, you know, I wasn't the hip I was used on that record really wasn't what I wanted. It was a Sound City 50 watt head. And uh, the only time you get any balls out of it was like on 11. And, uh, they kept telling us to turn it down, you know. So, while uh, you're trying to, the only balls in the amp on 11, you're trying to turn it down to eight, you know, it's not really working. Oh, uh, again, you just kept moving the mic farther back, you know, <laughs> placing it differently until finally she got something that worked. But, um, you know, going in with amplifiers that I actually would use in the studio uh, made a big difference to me, you know? Of course. um Johnny was, you know, Johnny liked the. Uh, the drum sound on the original, we thought if he'd gone back and, you know, had a chance to record it, he would have had more control over it and get a more powerful sound, you know? So that's what we did.
1: And, of course, the the album does sound great. Now, you are also on tour, the 40th anniversary tour. You're coming up here, my neck of the woods, uh, October 28th at the Fairmount in Montreal, and, of course, the next night, the 29th in Ottawa at the Brass Monkey. Uh, both venues, by the way, you'll love the Brass Monkey. I think you're going to love just a little more. Um talk to me about the live show now because and then we'll talk about the live show back in the day but what can fans expect cuz you know you were always this high energy band some would even say controversial what are we going to see in the 40th anniversary shows
3: Well pretty much the same thing um you know Jake Haut the new singer um you know he sounds like Steve but he's his own guy he has his own Performance uh, going on, oh! Which is what I love about it because you know, I've waited. I've never tried to work with another singer since they died because just nobody made the cut as far as I was concerned. And Jake made the cut the first time I met him. You know, um, you know he got out there and you know worked worked the stage like a pro. And uh, you know it's very exciting. You know it's very fun to have somebody out there do it. I like not being glued to the mic and not having to sing all songs. You know um it's it's pretty exciting the crowds you know crowd likes it to me it goes back to the chaos of the 70s i mean it's like it's as you're ever gonna get to the original thing uh, we've got a really good crew here you know a on young guitar is wonderful and uh i think it's about as close as you're ever gonna get to the, you know, i close my eyes and i, you know, I could be back on cbs so,
1: so so talk to me about those those early shows um was it sort of just performance art? Was it just getting some anger out? Or was it just sort of this, what the hell are we doing here? Let's just throw something out at the audience and see what sticks.
3: It was just us being us. Like, right. It wasn't really, you know, we never put that much thought into it. I mean, you know, we got out there and still all of a sudden was all over the place and, you know, jumping around and breaking stuff. And, you know, Um when it happened we were like well that was great do that again you know it was uh it wasn't like it was contrived we sat down and made any kind of a battle plan we were uh we never thought anything out that far ahead <laughs> you know we were we were big on planning the strategy or anything like that we uh just kind of were there and did what we did
1: yeah you really did um i want to talk a little bit about the the second album here uh we have come for your children on it you have, have well, yeah, just for a second, you have a, you have a song on there called Ain't It Fun, which later, later on Guns N' Roses uh, took uh, or covered for their Spaghetti Incident album. Uh, talk to me about that song, and how important was it for you that Guns N' Roses covered it? Because obviously, I mean, monetarily it must have been an absolute windfall, but just to have one of the hottest bands at the time say, hey man, listen to these guys. These were guys were influential,
3: well, you know, I mean, it means a lot, you know, um you know, a couple of years ago, you tour on their on their tour, they did a thing in the, during the intermission where they showed bands that influenced them, and you know they had the Dead Boys in there three times I mean that means a lot cause, uh you know we, we worked pretty hard at what we did, and we really believed in it, and I'm glad to see it you know got through some people you know to me, that song always will be about Peter lofner um who wrote the lyrics. I wrote the music. He wrote the lyrics during Rock and the Tombs, and uh, to me, that song is always about him because he literally lived that song. You know, he everything in that song happened to him. He bought a gun. He died long, You know, he did it all, and um, that's what that song always means to me. And you know, Stu's performance of it, I thought was really good too. He uh, live and took out a new meeting because he was a friend of Peter's as well. That's what I meant to Stu. So um, what other people covered, I mean, it was just an honor and all that, but it will always be about Peter to me. Yeah, it
1: really was. And and, and, and of course, Guns N' Roses' version is, is really, really great. Um, it's
3: really good. I was really, really um, honored by the fact they kept it so so close to the original, you know, I and mean, I thought they did a good job of it. And, um, you know, they didn't change a whole lot of, you know, things or anything. You know, same with, you know, Pearl Jam's cover of Sower and Caduceus. They, they stuck pretty close.
1: We've mentioned Stiv a couple of times. Of course, uh, you know, he passed away years ago. Uh, talk to me about Stiv and what he brought to the band, and what what did he bring in terms of being a frontman uh, to the Dead Boys?
3: Um, Stiv was a leader, uh, which we were, you know, kind of not. <laughs> uh, Johnny and I had been rocking the tombs prior to that, and, uh, you know, we were... Not directionless, but we, you know, were kind of just sitting around waiting for the next cool thing to come along. And Steve came in, and when we met him, he he had plans. You know, what I mean, he wanted to do this, and he kind of organized things. And he was just an excellent front man at every every way you can know, think of one. You know, I mean, he was the leader at a meeting. He was the leader on stage. He was on tour. You know, he was the leader, but he was also you know, a really great personality, and a great guy to hang out with and you know, he's older than all of us, so you could always you know he's six years older than me, you know, so you know I could always go to him and watch problems or you know? something <laughs> you know he actually gave good advice
1: now now the band of course only did two albums with uh, at the time how how come you weren't able to keep it together and move forward and and have a third album that you had tried a couple of reunions, but why was it sort of like this? lightning in a bottle. It happened, and it was great, but it just couldn't keep going.
3: Well, I think it had a lot to do with personnel. I think we had a couple, you know... You know, after just the first album, and we toured, and we went in and did the second album, and the second album we did in Miami with Felix Capillardi, and as far as the band was concerned, that was a disaster. I mean, it didn't sound like we wanted it to, because the songs sounded like Thunder Live, and they sounded like a wet beer fart. You know, on the record, they were it was weak, you know? And uh, we were, I think a little self-doubt set in. I think kind of the band went off into little factions. Um, and so when it came time to tour behind it, and then Johnny got stabbed. That had a lot to do with it because we were all geared up to go on a tour. Johnny got stabbed and we had to sit around for four or five months while he recuperated. And uh, that's kind of when the rot set in, you know? I mean, I, had, I ended up, getting, you know, developing a drug problem pretty much out of boredom. And, uh, you know, it. Right. Uh, other people had other things going on. Everybody got distracted. We went back into it. Uh, we weren't really all focused on the same thing that we had been. We used to have this gang mentality. It was the five of us against the world. And when we got into, oh, maybe it's just us three or maybe us three should go solo. Or, you know, <laughs> it's it got weird, you know, and um, we finally ended up with Seymour Stein calling us back for tour and having a meeting in his office, which broke up the band. Um, personally, I think if we would stuck to our guns and just gone and found a different label, we would have been fine. But uh, other members thought they wanted, you know, they wanted to go in a power pop direction. It was, it was, you know, kind of pitiful.
1: You you mentioned Felix Papillardi, and you know, he 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 did some great work with a whole bunch of bands. What, yeah. what, what was it about we should him? Have been <laughs> him. We should yeah.
3: have been one of them. should
1: have one Why was it not working with him?
3: Because he tried to theme Wild Beast, you know? He, and plus, he was a huge coke freak. I mean, it was two different scenes, you know? It didn't make sense. I, I had Lou Reed wanted to produce the album. That would have been a, you know, a masterpiece, you know? I mean, Lou at least, you know, knew what we were trying to do. Felix didn't have a clue. You know, that was kind of when things went south because all of a sudden we tried to go in a commercial direction, which I never saw us going in. I didn't think it was important that we go in a commercial direction. I thought we were fine like what we were. I thought we we should, you know, find our own direction, you know?
1: Yeah, it, it it's, it's certainly seems a lot more to the punk ethos to, to sort of carve out your own kind of path, right?
3: Well, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, you know, back then, the record company was so structured and so in control that you, you couldn't fight against it, really. Um, you know, because they could crush you. And that's what they did with us. You know, they kind of forced us to break up. And um, I just wish the band would have been strong enough to resist it. But, of course,
1: it, it's also probably sort of the punk ethos to sort of just, and I don't want to sound disrespectful, but, you know, the crash and burn you know, like and just make a big impression. It seems to be sort of the, the way to do it. Um, CBGBs closed of course yeah. a few years ago just an important club in the history of america not even in the history of new york i mean there's just an entire culture that comes from cbgb's talk to me about some of those early days and and being one of those guys that made it such a landmark
3: well you know it was the thing of it was the acid of the 60s it was the early part of the 70s and all, you know, everything, rock and roll was kind of stagnating, and you know, all of a sudden there was this place where you could go and do whatever you wanted, and you didn't have to, you know, satisfy anybody or go by the rules. So, you know, coming up in Cleveland where it was very structured, you know, you had to play covers, and you know, and original material was frowned upon, you know, to go to New York was very, you know, absolute freedom. There were so many good bands back then, you know. That came from everywhere, every every direction they were coming from. And uh, looking back on it, it's even more. It's, it's even better than I thought it was, you know. Uh to listen to some of those records that came out during the funk the era, they're masterpieces. There, you know, they're just stand right up there with Sergeant Pepper, you know. Yeah. And um, it was a big party, you know. There was a band. There was somebody to see every you know seven days a week at CBGB's. You know, and they might not be anybody you ever heard of afterwards, but they were worth seeing that night, you know. I mean, a lot of bands have played it once in fizzle, but you know, I was lucky enough to be there for their gig. Was it was
1: it disappointing to you when it closed? I mean did, did it feel almost as if you were losing a family member?
3: I was real close with Hilly uh at the time that the bar was closing and uh did it pretty well pretty well run his course. I mean, he was thinking of moving into Las Vegas, which actually was, I thought it was nuts at the time. And looking back, it was actually probably a pretty good idea because since then, Vegas has actually developed a role scene and they don't have a club that's as good as CBG's there. You know? Um, it was, I don't know, you know, it was, there was, the, 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 dance, the of it was pretty dreary. It, it
1: was. Um, I
3: mean, go ahead. The, the music scene, you know, the kids just aren't coming through, like they said. You know, there's no if nobody steps up carries the torch, the torch gonna you know go out
1: well you know there there's always been this or, or for the last you know ten or fifteen years, people have been screaming about how rock is dead. Is that sort of how you see it that we've we've gotten to this point where it just can't move forward or you know what what sort of the solution to keep it going?
3: Oh, i like to think that you know, guys I mean let's get out there and do it two more sixty twos good reason, you know. I mean, over, you know, you don't you don't have to stop when you're a kid. You can keep it. You can be a lifer if you want to, but you just gotta want to.
1: Yeah. Um. When people think of of the punk scene, certain songs step out. God save, you know, the Sex Pistols. God save the Queen. All, but Sonic Reducer is one of those where people just go, "Oh yeah, that's one of those." Um. Talk to me a little bit about that song and and what it means to you, what did it mean to you back then? What does it mean to you now? And how did it just sort of become this anthem or, or, or of the punk scene where just people go, yeah, that's that's one of our top five sort of punk songs right there?
3: I don't know, because that was one of the easiest songs I ever wrote in my life. I knew, mean, literally. Um, Dave Thomas, uh, we were doing a Rock and the Tunes rehearsal. This is close to the breakup, like 75. We um, came to rehearsal. He's like, I've got his lyrics. I wanted to write music for and hand me a piece of paper. I read the lyrics through it. I started playing around it was about in a minute, I had a riff and it was Sonic producer, you know. Um the arrangement, the band came in a couple minutes, you know, two minutes later we ran through it. And um, it sounded way different than it ended up with the dead boys, but it uh but the whole song came together that night. To me it's just the energy of it. I think it's uh something that, you know, everybody feels. I mean uh the song's about a you know, an alienated serial killer type building a doomsday machine in his basement, you know? <laughs> and uh just so we can get back at all the people that you know, pissed them off. And that's I think that's uh yes, everybody's felt that at some point.
1: Yeah, they really have. Now when you recut it for the uh still snotty at forty, uh Is that something that you really want to sort of keep the original vibe to or is in your head saying, okay, here are all the things I need to fix
3: in it? No, that was one that um, I didn't want to touch really. I mean, um, just put 40 more years worth of experience into it. That's it. So where do
1: we go from here? You had a solo album, which was actually just called solo back in 2013 do you want to go down that route where you'd make some more solo records do the dead boys do a- another album of original material or is it like hey here's our tour thank you very much we're done
3: oh um, i don't see any reason why i can't do both i could do a solo record i could use dead boys record i mean it's uh right. open. i mean i'm not it, it, what i do isn't something you just walk away from you know, it's uh I still playing well I, you know, they like asked me that I cut off my leg, you know. <laughs> of, course, of course I'm still playing, you know, just quit. And um that's what I love to do and I'll do it till I drop.
1: Is there plans right now for a solo record and or a dead boys record, or is that something we'll see you know, call you back in a year kind of thing?
3: No, well, there's material actually in the can for a solo record. And um, you know, but those songs could actually be translated into a dead boys record um i would like to know jake like jake our singer he's a very good singer in his own right when he's not being stiff you know so um the band could very well come out with an entirely new sound you know yeah that would I mean, be- it would be very similar but you know i mean it might be time you know maybe after you get done with all this touring we could let jake be jake and make another good record with the you know with the same man
1: Yeah, that'd be great. Um, A few years ago, you put out the uh, Cheetah Chroma Dead Boy's Tale from the Front Lines of Puck Rock, the book. Um, Yeah. Talk to me about that book. You know, is it something that, first of all, is it something that you wrote entirely, or was it uh, helped along? And is it cathartic to sort of look back at your time in the band and, and those days, or do you sort of look back at it and go, oh
3: God, what the hell was I doing? Oh, no. Um, no, when I sat down to write the book, I mean, I had to be talked into it. A friend of mine, uh, this girl from Boston, Michelle, she worked for the publisher, and she kept telling me, you need to write a book, you know, you need to write a book.
2: Mm-hmm. And
3: finally, she talked me to do it a sample chapter. I said, okay, what the hell? I well, did a sample chapter, which would be about a half an hour, and I sent it out to the publisher. I, next thing I know, I get just acceptance letter. i like, yeah, we'll do it. We're going to give you this much for advance. And you know, in a year and a half. <laughs> and I go, oh, great, now I gotta write the damn book. <laughs> you know? <laughs> so, um, and I might have to to get a ghostwriter in or whatever, but no, I actually sat down and typed every word of it myself. Wow, that's and great. So, so, uh, I mean, anything you see in that book, I, I typed myself into a computer. And,
1: and how was it sort of looking at your life under the microscope? Because, you know, we all sort of go through our days and our time and we say, oh, I was you know a nerd when i was a kid but how was it for you to say okay here i am in one of these bands that is influential and we had all this crazy stuff going on with the drugs and the this and the, you know how how was that to go all back the
3: time well the time i was doing it i was my you know i was married and living in my house i owned and my four-year-old Pete was running around playing with me while i was writing it you know so it was a much different life. And, uh, you know, it was very easy to kind of, you know, separate myself from the life I was living and the life I lived then and, you know, see the difference, you know. Um, it's, much, it's almost as cathartic to do all these interviews and get asked the same questions over and over and come up with different answers, you know, because it's, uh, it's almost like I to a psychiatrist, you know, things <laughs> come...
2: It is, you know. I
3: realize things. I, I do realize things while I'm talking to people. That you know, geez, I mean, you know, that, that just clicks in my head. You know,
1: when I when I was looking into Stiv and, and the Dead Boys, I came across an interview with Iggy Pop that he had done right after uh, the news of Stiv's uh, passing, and oh, a video. Yeah, a video. And then he was talking about yeah. about Stiv, and and he was addressing the parents, and and it was very heartfelt and, and emotional what did what did Iggy mean to the band and, and to you guys and and you know what was that f- well in fact just 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 talk to me a little bit about Iggy were you a fan of Iggy's and what did he mean
3: to- oh I was a huge fan of Iggy. he was okay. my hero till the time till you know <laughs> he was uh well you know great um I love the Stooges you know and I thought Iggy was you know the coolest and when I met him, and you know he—he wasn't all what I expected. He, you know, he's kind of a jerk, you know. Um, you know, I like him now. I mean, you know, but we've had—we've had our butted heads several times, and uh, you know, he's got several personalities. You never know which one you're gonna get, you know. Um, I'm much better, you know. I get along much better with James Williamson, and you know, I've got along very well with the Ashton brothers, and you know, the Stooges are always been uh, heroes to me. Um, but Iggy always—he never let me down uh, on stage, you know. Right, right, yeah. And uh, that's was the best for counts, you know. He was always—he was always there on stage, and that's what I expected. That's what you know, getting after me up to my expectations off stage. Yeah, Iggy. Yeah, you know, I,
1: <laughs> years ago I, I had this weird experience where I was side stage, standing next to uh, Marky Ramone watching Iggy play, and that was just one of those sort of like how did I end up in this situation kind of things, you know? Um, and then we'll finish with this. Rocket from the Tombs, sort of the band, that the precursor to the Dead Boys. Um, yeah. Talk to me about that band and, you know, why, why could the band not sort of pull out of Cleveland and, and, and move on to that next step? Why was moving to New York for you the right choice and then, of course, moving on to the Dead Boys?
3: You know, Cleveland's one of these funny towns that sucks you in. And, you know, people from Cleveland, you know, they tend to never leave. Like, I'm one of the few that ever left. You know, I think they they resent it, too. (laughs) But for some reason, everybody seems to cling to uh, this myth of Cleveland being such a wonderful, arty place. And I never saw it. I never got it. I mean, Blizzard lives there still, you know? Um, To me, it just didn't have enough for me to stay. I uh, you know, New York was a place that was, you know, a big playground to me. It was, you know, totally opened me up as a person. Um, and Cleveland didn't. Back in the tombs, uh, we, to us, we were the dead boys, and like when even in Peru, like we talked about this. um, None of us ever mentioned it because we thought that was like our band, the flop. That was our failure band. And so we never, we didn't act like it ever existed. And then all of a sudden it came back and you know all because the tapes got out and everybody thought you know people thought it was great and they were like you know bootlegging it and all that and we ended up having to release it on our own just because of that yeah and then touring after twenty five years was all you know something we never thought would happen you know so our, our failure actually turned out to be just as much of a success as the dead boys or Rock, or peruby you know but it was um because we to think about it <laughs> that's the way it happened but at the time you know rockets is one of the best things I've, i think one of the best things i've ever done you know I mean, i, I love that band and it, it just never occurred it wasn't jump in the van and go to new york you know um, it took Peter and Steve to go do the legwork and Steve finally came back and said, you know, Hey man, you know the people like us, they're not in Cleveland. They're in New York. We need to go to New York, you know? Yeah.
1: Great, great scene. And, and unfortunately, I don't think there's many cities that have these great scenes anymore. It's, it's a shame, you know, New York and LA in the eighties just had these vibes going. And
3: well, it's and- funny. I live in Austin, Texas right now. If you go downtown on any night, it's like New York was in the seventies. I mean, there's there's more rock and roll in Austin than there is anywhere. You know, this week's been slow because of the hurricane, but I mean, um, you know, most, most nights you can go out and see anything you want here. And, um, LA is reviving pretty good. There's a good rock scene in uh, LA. Um, San Francisco is always a steady town. It's, it's just not glamorized as much as it was. The press back then used to glamorize it so much because, I don't know, I guess to sell papers, you know, right. So you had you know Rock Scene magazine, Cream magazine, you know each one, you know. But now when you got instant news anytime you want it, I mean everything's any, everywhere, all the time. So um, you know a scene can be a countrywide scene now.
1: Yeah, it's certainly changed from back in the day. Um, of course, uh, still snotty, young, loud, and snotty at forty. Uh, new album is out, Uh, enjoy, and uh, Cheetah, great pleasure speaking with you today, and I I certainly look forward to, to yeah, and I look forward to checking out either the Montreal or uh, Ottawa show, and,
3: uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to both of them, you know, Canada's one of my favorite places, so.
1: We still have a a bit of a punk vibe going here, especially in the clubs, so. Oh, yeah,
3: yeah, I don't think it's it's died there at all, we're up in a, Ron just did one in Ontario back in uh, April. It was great.
1: And of course, uh, hopefully, we'll hear "Ain't It Fun" at at the shows. I'm 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 hoping, right? We'll we'll hear that one.
3: I think we might do it at some point in the setup. I can't remember. <laughs> <laughs> of course we do. It.
1: <laughs> of course, that's right. And <laughs> uh, and of course, people will say, "Oh, they're covering Guns N' Roses. That's so cool." <laughs> right? Well, you know,
3: I for years when I was doing a song, I was tired. I actually announced as a Guns N' Roses song that people thought it was <laughs> i'm not
1: surprised
3: you know so i mean it was it was actually like when it, when that came out during like the early 90s yeah i would say i want to do a guns N' roses song everybody clap they everybody got the biggest hand of the night that's funny yeah. that's funny. <laughs> but that's, you
1: know? but that's uh, how that's how it is sometimes um yeah great pleasure thank you thank you for today man.
3: well thank you man you have a good time man. you too now cheers bye-bye Talk to you soon.
1: And there you have it, folks, my interview with Cheetah Chrome of the Dead Boys. I certainly hope you uh, enjoyed that. And uh, you know what? This episode is seeming just a little bit short to me, so I didn't announce it up front, but I'm going to add a bonus little interview uh, here with Dario Lorena of Black Label Society uh, talking about his new album, Death, Grip, Tribulations, and more. Short interview, about 12 minutes, and uh, why not? You know, we only have an hour. Let's, let's bring this up to like an hour and, and 15, hour and 20. Uh, so I'll be right back with Dario from Black Label Society.
3: You're listening to Rock Talk with Mitch lafon
1: Rock Talk. Welcome back, and uh, thank you for sticking around uh, for this bonus interview with Dario Lorena from Black Label Society. Before checking out Dario, please check me out on Twitter at Mitch Lafon, M-I-T-C-H-L-A-F-O-N, Instagram at Mitch underscore Lafon, and of course, check out the Podcast One app. That is the best place to get all the great content that Podcast One offers. And with that, here is the one, the only, Dario Lorena. We are speaking with Black Label Society guitarist Dario Lorena, the new album. Or the album recently released is Death Grip at Tribulations. It actually came out, I guess, in the winter of uh, 2017, in February. Uh, pleasure to speak with you, Dario. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Yeah, it came out. Uh,
4: Death Grip came out in February.
1: Yeah, so, so in fact, let, let's talk about that. We're sort of almost at the six uh, six month mark since it came out. Um, talk to me about the album and putting together a instrumental album for for shrapnel of course uh mike varney
4: yeah well this is my second album that i did with shrapnel so my first one came out in 2013 which was my first solo album that i did which was instrumental also which was on shrapnel um and the second one death grip um tribulations which came out a few years after this past february um yeah i mean making instrumental albums to me uh, is a blast as a guitar player you know And, and when i was younger like I've looked up to a lot of guys that were on shrapnel, um, and a goal of mine, I always wanted to do two instrumental albums. So with death grip, this is my second one. And, you know, it's a blast. Um, I mean, for me writing, I'm, I'm writing songs like if I were to sing over them and then I just, you know, the, the chorus is, a, a a you know, a theme melody throughout the song. And then I just, you know, come up with some solos to put in the verses. Um, but they're structured like a, a vocal song. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's—I have a blast doing it. At
1: some point, do you see yourself doing a vocal album, either with you singing or bringing in some guest singers or hiring one guy to come in and sing your songs?
4: Oh yeah, I'm working on my uh, my next album actually right now. I'm trying to get—I'm trying to finish writing and recording it by the end of the year. We'll see if I can make that happen. But uh, yeah, I'll be singing on it. And uh, yeah, that—that's always been my plan.
1: Now you joined, of course, Black Label Society with Zach Wilde uh, back in 2014. Um, talk to me about making that transition from Lizzie Borden into Black Label because uh, Black Label is 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 a brotherhood. It's it's intense, and when you're in, you're in for for life, kind of thing, right?
4: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so um, to, yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, as far as music-wise, tra- you know, making that transition was was pretty easy. I mean, I come from a rock guitar-driven band music background, you know. So I played with Janie Lane when I was younger, and then I played with Lizzie. And uh, now, now I'm playing with Black Label and guitar-wise, it's all kind of in the same wheelhouse, you know. Um, but you know, I, I look at Lizzie Board and those guys are my brothers. And going into Black Label, you know, you just your family gets your family gets bigger. Um, you know, Black Label has its own has its own kind of uh, you know family all over the world. So you know, it's it's just been nothing but a warm welcome, you know, coming into Black Label and you know everybody's awesome. The band's awesome, and uh, yeah, I have a great time jamming with everybody.
1: Now you haven't been on a Black Label album yet, but are you currently working with on one with Zach for for a release say
4: late in two thousand eighteen? I won't be. I mean, you know, Zach's a guitar player. He's got he's got all the riffs he needs. You know, I'm sure if he uh, if he needs one, to let me know. But you know, th- that's uh, you know, it's, uh, Black Label's always been his thing. So that's uh, you know, that's his department.
1: Now, you, of course, you you started off uh, touring at the age of sixteen with uh, Janie Lane of Warrant and. I've always been a huge Warren fan, I thought Janie was just absolutely wonderful. Uh, talk to me about that and, and how Janie picked you up,
4: and just what what was that experience like for you? Well, the experience was, uh, you know, it was one of a kind. And as a young kid, it was, uh, you know, I, I grew up real fast, and, uh, you know, I wouldn't have traded any of those experiences for the world. It was, uh, when I look back on that, it's nothing but great memories. But, you know, I was I was 16, so I was... Uh, junior in high school, and you know, I was playing guitar, you know, when I was young since I was much younger. But at that age, when I got into high school, it was that's all I thought about, that's all that dominated my brain. And uh, I was just, you know, I just thought of myself as a guitar player. You know, it was like, okay, what are you going to do with the rest of your life? You're going to, you know, be a doctor, you're going to play football, you're going to do whatever. I was like, oh, I'm going to play guitar, that's just what I thought about. So, uh, MySpace was big at the time and I saw Janie had somebody posted an ad that said Janie was looking for a guitar player um on that bulletin board they had on MySpace and I I, I hit the contact that was in that that message and uh they gave me an email which was to Janie's management manage, management and then uh, I sent a bunch of emails to him and then I got some responses and then we started conversing and then they had me send some uh tracks of me playing Warren songs, which I panned like the original track to one side and my guitar to the other side. Um, and then I sent all those over. We, we kept talking. They had me come out to LA. I, I, I jammed with Janie in this small rehearsal studio with, where Janie just played drums. It was just Janie and I, he played drums. I played guitar. He didn't sing. And we played like, uh, I think we played uncle Tom's cabin and, uh, Mr. Rainmaker and some of his back down to one, which was, which was his latest solo album that was coming out right around that time. Um, and we right. jammed and all that in this room and then, you know, things went really well. So a couple of months later we were, uh, we were torn and I, I played with him for, uh, for two years.
1: You know, unfortunately, Janie passed away. What are some of your greatest memories of Janie and what, if anything, did he teach you? What, did he mentor you in any way? Cause I mean, he was a seasoned veteran. He was a very experienced songwriter. Did he ever sit you down and say, Hey, this is how you put a song together or this is how you should behave in public or did,
4: did he... Mentor you at all? Well, I mean the mentoring was probably, you know, built into just, you know, the experience of just being out there and, you know, just hanging around each other. I mean, you know, we sat down, we sat down a couple times uh writing and it was just like I had this guitar thing and then he would come up with a melody and then, you know, he would come up with these really cool uh like guitar melody lines um and he would always say to me, "See, this is where writing comes into play." You know, so that always stuck with me. Just, just little things like that. Um, you know, fond memories of like, you know, we had this home base in Ohio, which is where he was from where we would like hang out for a week or a weekend and, and, and do a bunch of shows and then come back to this home base and go back out and do a bunch of shows. Um, and you know, hanging out, watching football, he'd be cooking, uh, you know, Mexican food or lasagna or whatever he loved to cook. So those you know, those are fond memories. And, uh, yeah, but, you know, everything as far as, like, the mentoring thing was probably just built into just hanging out, you know?
1: Yeah, now, speaking of mentoring, uh, you are, of course, in a band with Zach Wild, who is a guitar hero to many people around the world, and, and rightly so. He's absolutely phenomenal. Um, what is it like for you as a guitar player to be in a band with Zach and, and watch his style and watch his pings and watch everything he does? Um, what are you learning from him? Um,
4: I mean, he he is... I mean, he's absolutely amazing, and he's he's a true leader. So just being around him, you uh, you know, you can't help but soak up some of his awesomeness, for, for lack of a better word. You know, um, yeah. I mean, you know, it's it's not like oh, I'm gonna go. I, I got to figure out how he does this or how he does that. It's just kind of like it just you just soak it in because you're around it. So whether you think you're learning or not, you're you're, you're absorbing whatever's going on around you. So and uh, yeah. he's an amazing guy to absorb from.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, On uh, Death Grip Tribulations, you have Motorhead's Phil Campbell on there. Um, How did that connection come about? And again, in terms of guitar players, what's it like working with Phil? Because he is another guy that has, you know, 30 or 40 years of career and experience behind him.
4: Yeah, well, Phil and I have been friends for uh, a good amount of years. We met playing uh, uh, a clinic together over in germany and frankfurt at this music mesa which is like the european nam show that they have and we both play in these this company called lag guitars so we were over there for for that week playing clinics at this show um and you know we became really friendly and uh you know we had talked about trying to do something when my first album was coming out together um but you know guys touring guys schedules can be all over the place um so it can be hard to link up but on the second one we were able to make it happen and uh I had this song, which I was working on, um and it was you know I basically laid the foundation out and had it pretty much recorded, and then I sent it over to Phil um and his son Todd. they engineered it over at Phil's studio over in Wales, and Phil just laid down a bunch of solos um, and sent the song back to me, and It was like, this is phenomenal um and his tone is killer, and his playing is awesome, so i'm um, you know i'm I'm happy we were able to we were able to make that happen within uh, within that time frame. Um, but, you know, like a couple of years before that, after we were playing those clinics before this album, Phil had hit me up. They were in Vegas with Motorhead and he's like, I want you to come up and play Killed by Death. Um, so, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a history there and uh, I'm glad I could have him on the album this time around. Yeah, what a great story.
1: Um, Shrapnel, uh, of course, Mike Varney, he has discovered many great talents. He's He's really put together this label that has functioned for years and years and years talk to me about Mike Varney and, and what he means to you on a, on a professional level, but also what does he contribute to uh, music in general via his label? Cause it really does sort of fill a gap, right?
4: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he was the, you know, he was the beginning of a heavy metal label and especially guitar driven, guitar oriented guitar player label. Um, so, I mean, you know, he, he's a legend and, you know, scrapping, like I said, was always something that I was, uh, I had looked up to. So, be a part of the tumbling, and I'm I'm very happy to be a part of Shrapnel and work with Mike. Um, but Mike has been, you know, Mike gave me that opportunity to do that first album, and now we're here on the second one. And, you know, I'm I'm forever grateful. It's uh, it's it's something I'm proud of, and uh, I, I, you know, I think we both enjoy working on these things together. Yeah. Now you are you are of course with Black Label.
1: At some point, do you want to break out and be more of a solo artist, or put together your own band? Or are you sort of happy
4: where you are in terms of musically, professionally? I mean, I'm I'm extremely happy where I'm at. And, uh, you know, just because you're doing one thing doesn't mean you can't do the other, you know. So, um, yeah, I mean, I'll be with Black Label as long as I can be with Black Label, you know. Um, but, you know, like, I'll always do these side albums on the side, but that doesn't mean I've got to take up my uh, – it doesn't mean I can't do one or the other, you know. Right, yeah. And, that's... you know, it, yeah.
1: Yeah, that's true. Um. You did mention lag guitars and I, and I did want to talk about that. Uh, talk about your relationship with lag guitars and what do you look for in a guitar in terms of pickups and, and you know, the the way it's built and all that wonderful stuff.
4: Yeah. Um, well, I met lag at the same place I met Phil, which was a couple of years before at this music mesa. Um, and their guitars just kind of caught me because they were, you know, they, they just had like little details that were like, Oh, that's cool. You know, and they played great. Um, like, you know, instead of their switch, their their pickup selector being like a straight thing, it was like a half moon and t- just like l- very little things. It was like they paid attention to detail that I, that I liked. And, uh, there were, of course, amazing people, um, as far as pickups, um, Seymour Duncan is, I- I've, I've found a, I-, I found a home in Seymour Duncan, as far as everything I want to hear in a pickup, they have, you know, and and anything that they do so i mean you know i'm playing i'm playing all pretty much seymour duncan pedals which are amazing Uh, i've replaced every pickup of my guitar with all seymour duncans um so you know as far as the guitar i just wanted to play to play great look cool and and sound good you know seymour duncan's making it sound good and lag you know the lag makes it play amazing so very happy great stuff
1: now uh you were of course in lizzie borden Uh, talk to me about about being in that band and and the time you spent with them
4: yeah uh that that was a great that was a great time um you know we toured the world we played uh we played a lot of amazing places a lot of amazing festivals um you know i i I turned 21 uh with them over in paris and uh we climbed halfway up the eiffel tower on the stairs and, and got to the top and drank a bunch of beers uh, and continue to have a good time throughout the rest of the night in Paris. But uh yeah, I mean nothing but great memories, of those guys are my brothers and uh yeah, it was it was an awesome experience.
1: It really was. Uh Dario, great pleasure to speak with you today.
4: Yeah, thank you very much. I appreciate you having me on, man. Thanks to everybody ha- for hanging out.
1: Yeah, and uh the next uh, solo album by the way, are we looking for uh end of two thousand seventeen or a two thousand eighteen release?
4: No release date in mind, but if I if I were to estimate it would be
1: sometime in two thousand eighteen. There you go. Uh, Thank you, Dario. Much appreciated. Thanks, Mitch. Cheers. Have a good one. You too. Have a good one. Bye.
0: Download new episodes of Rock
2: Talk with Mitch Lafon every Monday at Podcast One and on the Podcast One app, or you can subscribe at iTunes. And don't forget to rate, review, and share.
1: President Trump denies it. I'm Rita Foley with an AP News Minute. President Trump denies on Twitter using vulgar language when questioning why the U.S. would accept more immigrants from Haiti and African nations. 17 dead, 43 missing in Southern California after Tuesday's heavy rain and devastating mudslides. Santa Barbara County Sheriff Bill Brown is asking people to evacuate some areas so search and rescue crews can do their jobs.
2: It is seriously impacting The ability of search and rescue, public works, other first responders and repair crews to clear roadways and to engage in search and rescue, repair and damage assessment operations.
1: Missouri Governor and former Navy SEAL Eric Greitens is now under investigation after acknowledging an extramarital affair but denying anything more, including accusations that he tried to blackmail the woman into keeping quiet. I'm Rita Foley.